My name is Andrew Bustamante, and this is Everyday Espionage. sharing what I've learned from CIA during Season 1 and Season 2 of the Everyday Espionage Podcast. But for Season 3, I wanted to do something different. And I wanted to offer all of you a new voice. You've listened to me teach you about using espionage skills and tactics in everyday life. And many of you believe me, but some of you are still waiting before you take action. So for Season 3, I wanted to let you hear from other spies. Heroes who are still serving and cannot share their identities for personal or professional reasons. I want to let them tell you in their own words how a life spent spying has helped them take control of everyday situations. In this first episode, I introduce a good friend I've codenamed E.D. Jackal. Jackal is as real as it gets. A deep cover officer who ran sensitive CIA operations that nobody can know about. To kick off Season 3, I invited Jackal to join me in a small room way outside of civilization. Just him, me, and now you. Welcome to Everyday Espionage Season 3, the season where we discover the ground truth. Brother, I'm excited to be here with you. A couple of ground rules that I want to go over first. That is a recorder. And I know you are not used to sitting in front of a recording. Yeah, that's device. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. So the ground rules that I want to follow to make sure that we keep you safe and to make sure that the listening audience gets the most that they can get from you. We're not going to talk about your real name. We're not going to call anybody in your family by their real name. Anybody you've worked with, all the places you've been, I want to talk about as much as you're comfortable talking about, but I don't want to do it in a way that gives away who you are or where you're coming from. And you're used to, to doing this in your own life. Sure. Now okay. we're just doing it in front of a recording device. Okay, I'm ready to go. Sweet. So I'm going to talk. I'll call you all the same things I normally call you, brother, friend, right? Everything that I call you normally. But when I refer to you by your name, what I'm going to call you is E.D. Jackal, right? Mm -hmm. That's your friendly neighborhood encryption from Everyday Spy. Got it. Right? Yep. Rock on. All right, so... Thanks for sitting with me. Tell me, why are you here right now? Why are you sitting with me right now? You know, I'd like to tell people uh, my story. Maybe they could have a few takeaways and learn something from it. Yeah, I absolutely think that people will get something from your story. You, I know you follow Everyday Spy. I know you, you keep up with what I'm doing, and I really appreciate your support. Everything that I want us to talk about, I want it to have some sort of real-world application to the people who hear your story. Sure. We talk in the agency about war stories, and there's two types of war stories, right? There's the old men who tell war stories and make themselves sound awesome, and those are entertaining. But then there's war stories that we actually learn from, right? Yeah. That's how you learn. That's how I learn. It's how both of us teach. Yeah. Those are the war stories I really want to hear. So I want to tell this part of your story for you. So you are a heroic, inspiring former CIA officer. And I know you call CIA by a different name. You call them OGA sometimes. So for those of you listening, if you hear OGA, if you hear CIA, it's all one and the same thing. 
But I do want to hear, what did you love the most about being a field officer, about being a covert agent? What did you love? I think what I loved the most was the deep relationships and deep bond that I formed, not only with my teammates, but with the host nation services that we worked with, with the locals on the ground. These are the real heroes. Mm. Those are the tacticians that make it all happen. So it's really that deep bond, that tribal mentality. As you know, most of my work has been with uh, tribes. Tribes are different than the, the civilian society that we t are typically aware of. How are they different? Well, there's a tribal code. I'm your best friend or your worst enemy. It's a code of conduct and a code of ethics that has nothing to do with law and justice as, as we know it that was developed by mankind. This is a whole different set of rules and principles that cannot be violated. So it really keeps you on your toes. Yeah. So the deep bonds that you are talking about are deep bonds with a culture. Well, it's got multiple levels, right? At the tribal level, like you are somebody who comes in with a different skin color, a different family name, no familial connection to the tribe itself. Right. But the bond that you form is so strong, it's like being in the tribe. Yes. I mean, you're never truly inside the tribe. You're always going to be an outsider. But they will protect you. They will feed you. Um, for instance, the Pashtuns in northern Pakistan have a concept that's called Pakhtun Wali. Pakhtun Wali is a bond that they will protect any and all strangers that walk into their village. Good guys or bad guys. Huh. It's a tribal code. They watch you very closely. If you violate their code of ethics, if you disrespect a family member, if you make a move on one of their women, the consequences are catastrophic. It's fascinating because it's a whole different level of ethics, right? Absolutely. And, and we in the U.S. like to talk about, we in the U.S., we in the West, like to talk about ethics like it's some sort of standard, an international standard. But it's not. Ethics varies from tribe to tribe, from culture to culture, based on history, based on right. uh, any number of factors. Aristotle and Socrates talk a lot about uh, metaphysics and epistemology and what makes a just man, the four virtues, courage, wisdom, temperance, and justice. But this is objective reality. Yeah. You make a mistake, you can't talk your way out of it. Yeah. This is the opposite of politics. What it's we the call opposite of relativism. This is objective reality. There is no PC there. So to me, it's invigorating to be involved with people like this because I've always prided myself on confidence mm -hmm. and, you know, operating my life within a certain paradigm of standards. And uh, I mean, you feel alive because you make a mistake, it could be over. Yeah. You make a mistake and it could be over, but also you've got this connection with people who quite literally have your back because Absolutely. because that's the code. Yeah. You don't have to worry about somebody saying, I'll be there to help you, and then when the time comes that you need their help, right. they flake out. There are no flakes in tribal culture. Flaking right. is shaming yourself and shaming your family. Yes, and like in the agency, they teach you how to recruit people and you got to pay them and all this stuff. All that kind of goes out the window because what they're really looking for in a person such as myself who would literally walk into a village is a basic understanding of their culture. But most importantly, you have to be respectful. If you can respect them, they will take you in and they will die for you. So, it's, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that. You and I have had a lot of talks about tribal culture. And I know that your experience is kind of 
shaped in you an opinion that human beings are tribal at our core. Tell me more about where you see tribal behavior in, in even in Western society and where you think our society could very well end up. Uh, very good question. With all the problems that are surrounding us, i.e. the recent movie, The Joker, mm. really the meaning behind The Joker is society could collapse on itself and there could be anarchy. If anarchy develops in our society or any type of a Western type of a society in particular, it will probably devolve into some form of tribalism. And tribalism can be defined by a, a geography, can be defined by language, can be defined by ethnicity. So there's different varieties of tribalism. It could be defined by religion. Most likely in a society such as ours in the United States, it would probably be defined more or less geography, by geography. Yeah. geography. In other words, uh, you've got valleys, you've got mountains, you have lake areas. You pick any valley in the United States. So that area would yeah. probably become its own tribe. I love it because there are so many people out there talking about the doomsday scenario, right? Like, what if? What if our economy collapses? What if there's a nuclear holocaust? The lawlessness breaks out. There's a marketing message that says you're going to be on your own. Here, you need to buy this tactical gear. You need to know how to yeah. carry this weapon. You need to know how to yeah. you know, live in a bunker. Yeah. In actuality, what you're saying is we're going to break into tribes. And tribes break into clans. A clan could be a neighborhood of 50 people. Yeah. That could be a clan. That clan of 50 could align itself with another clan of 45 houses. Yeah. That's across the way. And you could have other neighborhoods that maybe align with somebody else. You could have a confederation of clans that become a tribe. A tribe then becomes a larger confederation. So you have all these different sub-clans. That's how it would, it would probably end up. Where in the world do we see that happening right now? Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen. We see it in Kurdistan. Exactly right. Like it's fascinating because we think that it sounds silly. Like in a Western mindset, it sounds ridiculous that, that I grew up on Acre Road in Pennsylvania, in rural Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. If all hell were to break loose in Pennsylvania, Acre Road would very well become a clan. Absolutely. The 36 houses would yeah. all band together, right. share resources. And we would, we would set our claim mm -hmm. that we are in charge of our own defense. And then when our little neighborhood became in contact with the next neighborhood over, clan leaders would meet and they would decide whether or not right. we are at war or at peace. Right. What's going to save people is not how many bullets you have, not if you have a generator, not if you have long weapons, night vision gear. That's not going to save you. What could save you, though, if you have a tight neighborhood that communicates amongst themselves, you may identify an ex-doctor, a policeman, an electrician, a carpenter, a nurse, a telecommunications guy who, yeah. who understands communications, ham radio guy. Yeah. So all these people can be found usually within a small neighborhood. The issue is, is that most neighborhoods these days do not communicate. Yeah. We're all in our little islands, house to house. We built uh, a house three to four years ago. One of our primary drivers in deciding factors of where we're going to build is we look carefully at these neighborhoods. We picked a neighborhood where all these houses were going up kind of at the same time. And we made sure that we got to know all of our neighbors. Mm. And now we have a, 
a neighborhood gathering at least once a month. Christmas party is a huge Christmas party. I think we've got 50 houses in our neighborhood. The Christmas party is packed with 100 people. Fourth of July parties, Memorial Day parties, we all know each other. That, in the end, is going to save us. I want to take a tangent just for a second because here's where my mind is. I'm thinking about how, how lucky the guy who lives to your left and the gal who lives to your right is, right? Because they live next to you. Right. But you operated in one of the deepest covers that we have available. So does anybody even know? Do your neighbors even know what you used to do? No. So they have no idea. You know, most people don't really ask that question. The difficulty is, because I travel so much, that my wife has to navigate the neighborhood because the wives talk. Mm. And my wife just says, you know, he's an international consultant. He travels all over the world. And I He's can, a jerk. He's always gone. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about oil and gas. I could talk about telecommunications. I could talk about manufacturing, agriculture, microfinance, private equity. I've been exposed to so many things that I could talk about anything to 15 different individuals. I've heard you talk about mining. I've heard you talk about horse racing. I've heard you talk about investments. Yeah, exactly. I, I could talk anything. That's wild. So here it is. Your little clan could be one of the best prepared to defend itself, but they're not even aware of the resources that they have because of the type of work that you did. Yeah. When I think of Zombieland in your neighborhood, it's just amazing because, you know, People would all band together around the, the guy who seems to know a little bit about finance, but who also knows his way around a weapon and who also knows how to set a claymore and who also knows how to secure a perimeter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty good with throwing knives. Too. <laughs> now, the good thing about our neighborhood is uh, we've got ex-sheriff deputies, two ex-sheriffs, firefighters, policemen, detectives, paramedics. Yeah. I would not want to be the guy that comes in our neighborhood, uninvited. So, so tell me this. How do you compare yourself against the other people in your neighborhood, like the sheriffs and the paramedics and yeah. the school teachers? Do you compare yourself against them professionally? And if you do, do you, what's the conclusion that you come to? Now, I think the way I look at it is that everyone has a role. We're all a clan. We're a tribe. We have some fighters. We have some peacemakers. We have intellectuals. We have service-oriented people. So everybody brings something totally different. So you sit here as a no-shit deep-cover badass, and you're telling me that when you look at the paramedic, when you look at the teacher, when you look at the car mechanic, you see somebody who has very real value. Absolutely. Somebody who's a critical piece of our society. Absolutely. Somebody who, is, who you are no better than that person. Our special operation teams were organized, and this is an open secret, you know, you've got a medic, you've got a weapons guy, you have a communications guy, you have an intelligence guy, you have what's called a Charlie, he's a, uh, it's an 18 Charlie series, he's your engineer slash fix it guy. Slash destroy it guy. <laughs> you know, sabotage guy, in the movie The Green Beret, you know. The main character was an 18 Charlie. He was the engineer, the fix-it guy, the guy that was always stealing all the stuff yeah. from the other military guys. Yeah. So that model has been around since Rogers Rangers, who became famous in the French and Indian War. There's a reason why special operations is organized around those principles, and that's the way your neighborhood should be organized. You have to have medical covered. You have to be able to communicate. Yeah. We had three guys I persuaded to get licenses as ham radio operators. Did you really? So now we can communicate with, with the world. We even put our own antenna up, up on top of the mountain. We can literally communicate off the grid 
to the entire world. So the doomsday, the doomsday scenario that I'm kind of joking about, you're actually already laying the groundwork to make sure that you have a, a defensible position. Absolutely, yeah. So we have communications are taken care of. Medical. There's other nurses. You got, Weapons guys. Yeah, you got, got a lot of law enforcement people. Mm-hmm. You know, Got some great mechanics. I'm a great mechanic. I can take a car or a truck apart and put it back together. Again. We have welders, carpenters. We need all these people. But at the end of the day, the, the difference is going to be what you have between your ears. Yeah. How well can you critically think? Yeah. How do you react against pressure? These are the things that no one really knows un, until the rounds start flying. You mentioned earlier that the thing you loved the most about the job was the deep relationships. Yes. Right? And we, yeah. we jumped off from that deep relationship conversation to talk about tribal connections. But now as we talk more about even just your neighborhood, you picked a neighborhood because of certain aspects of that neighborhood. And then you, you went in and you deliberately built the kind of relationships yes. where you can convince a total stranger to become a licensed ham radio operator. Yeah. And my wife is in on this too. I mean, she took it upon herself to organize the ladies' card playing group. So they meet once a month. And she's got it up to 27 members. So once a month, most of the women in the neighborhood actually meet to play cards and they have drinks, a lot of information. It's like an intel gathering yeah. operation. You know, everyone starts talking. The, the, the wives know everything. Yeah. Were there any burglaries? You know, when's the new streetlight coming? Electricity. When's Verizon coming in? You know, this is how we collect information. So it's funny because I think 98% of the people out there are going to hear about a gathering of women playing cards and think, I don't want to have anything to do with that. It's that intel sounds gathering. horrible. It's yeah. intel gathering. Intel and, gathering. And because you're an intel professional, because we are intel professionals and because the people listening are learning how to think like intelligence officers, you and I already know that the vast majority of your wife's time in that club, the majority of what she hears is not valuable information. She's there for the moments right. that something valuable comes out of it. I certainly hope you're enjoying the conversation with E.D. Jackal. He's one of my good friends, and I have to admit, every time I sit with him, I learn something new. And in this conversation, it's encouraging to remember that espionage isn't a solo sport. Even Jackal, a truly independent operator, still had to rely on his spouse and other special operators to succeed. Even now in his life, he still looks to those around him to be experts in what they do so that he can be an expert in what he does. This is something that Hollywood has wrong. You see, in spying, everyone has a role. Everyone has a purpose. It's not just one spy against the world. That's not how it works. We do what we do, and we do it as well as we can, and we rely on others to do what they do best also. The real value to espionage is to build a team, a high-performing team of people around you who all do what they were designed to do. Now, Jackal has only started sharing his story with us, and we have a few more episodes with him still ahead. Stay tuned next time to hear more ground truth from codename E.D. Jackal. This is Everyday Espionage. Everyday Espionage is dedicated to one thing, educating everyday people. I know that not everyone will listen, but those who listen will learn. 
If you learned something new today, click subscribe, review, and share the podcast with a friend. Find me on social media at Everyday Spy or on my website, everydayspy.com. If you are up for a special challenge, visit everydayspy.com forward slash operations and join me for an authentic spy training mission. And above all else, remember that knowledge is freedom.